Hello listeners, Future Johnny here, recording as I edit the podcast. This episode was recorded before episode 1 was released, and boy do we regret that, because we got more feedback on that episode than literally any episode we'd ever released. Look forward to our responses to all of that, or at least much of that, in episode 3, which will probably consist of at least 20 minutes of GSV responding to linguistics notes. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Cultured Swine, Finding Peace with Ancillary Justice. I'm Johnny. And I'm GSV Amusement Park. And today we're taking you through chapters four through seven. Of Ancillary Justice. Or wait, you said that part already. Indeed I did. So, yeah. any opening thoughts, or would you like me to just jump into the summary? I mean, we have our arc now. I was going to wait to bring that up, but this section gives us our arc, at least one of them. Yeah, we we know, we at least know what, actually, that's probably the first thing I should mention. Last time I hadn't decided on what I wanted to call the protagonist. I was kind of uncertain about what pronouns the protagonist should be called and what name they should be called, because it was like very unclear what their sense of self was as a person, at least in the flash forward segments. And even though it was pretty clear that the sort of linguistic convention was to use she for everybody in the Rajai, I wasn't sure if the protagonist would still apply that to themselves because they were so distanced from the Rajai. But there's been enough examples here by now that I'm just going to go with esque as a name or one esque and a she as the as the pronouns the protagonist uses. Uh, because that seems like what she would probably call herself. So, sure. Or c certainly, it's what the it certainly it comports with the translation convention that she's using. So, yeah. Even though anyway, so one ask says that what she wants is to kill the Lord of the Rajai and and a Niana I. Anander, yeah. I'm. You know what? I'm. I'm just. I'm. I'm going to try not to correct. But the filter or the, the, the gulf that is imposed between us by me going through the text and you going through the British audiobook narrator is interesting. Yeah, it's it sounds like Anna and Anna and Nianai or something very much like that. Close. Yeah, I, I I didn't actually know that the vowels were supposed to be separated. That would be a really good place for an apostrophe. But I've been saying it in my head as Anander Nianai. Yeah, it's definitely not Anander. There's a very pronounced stop anyway our protagonist wants to kill the lord of the rajai which is the evil human empire that we established in the last section but we For don't find that out they're not yet clear yes who's to say i don't think i even have any particularly good theories but like it could be any number of things there's all sorts of legitimate grievances you could have about this government but like i don't know what specific one tipped over one-esque if I had to guess, it would probably be something related to why she's no longer connected to any of her other ancillaries or to the ship that she used to be connected to. Like, 
maybe she got dishonorably discharged or maybe her ship got destroyed in some kind of like stupid incident that she blames Anna and Niana eyes for. Yeah, it's well, basically everything that we know about Raj is except for it's sort of fig leaf religious freedom is a is a list of grievances. Yeah, I mean, it could just be that One-esque now has like a more egalitarian or at least anti-authoritarian viewpoint, which, you know, would be very reasonable given that she was in a servant position for very long with a bunch of like very terrible people she had to follow orders from. So like, it would be very reasonable if she just wants to enact revenge upon the one who is most obviously to blame. Like, in that sense, we don't really need a specific reason, but I expect we're probably going to get something in particular that she's looking to avenge. Yeah, or, you know, her particular ancillary body could be could have been Garcidae. Although she's... Uh, no, maybe. never mind. The, the, the annihilation of the Garcidae is older than she described her existence as being. So Yeah, but we get reference to ancillaries being... Forget which chapter is... Oh, yeah, it's in chapter... It's in chapter four, actually. It's in the first chapter. You remember Skyat and On are having a conversation about the Ragi and empire and inequality and stuff. And one of them says like, oh, yeah, well, some humans might have killed some Orsians unfairly. But a hundred years ago, those people would have just been immediately made into ancillaries, like backup ancillaries. And we have, you know an extensively long backlog of ancillaries, which uh, in some poetic symbolic sense is probably like a literal manifestation of their past crimes, right? Like it's, uh, but, but the point being, because those people are all in cryogenic suspension, any given ancillary body getting used at any particular time could in principle be from pretty much any society. That's true. Uh, okay, that's fair enough. Anyway, we're telling things out of order, so let's just go with chapter four. Sure. So, chapter four. An Orsian, whose name I didn't write down, comes to Lieutenant Orn and preemptively levels with her about a uh, thing that she's found out. Daze. Thank I'm you. pretty sure. She's like, I found these guns. I don't know where they came from. I don't know who put them there. They, they've just been stuffed in a cache. And... I know from my experiences that this is the kind of thing that happens so that people can later like point at these and use them as a justification for something. But I I feel like I can kind of level with you because the Ragi wouldn't need to plant evidence to justify their actions because they don't give a shit. They just do whatever they wanted. But this is the kind of thing that the upper class of our society that, that sort of ruled over us before you came here, the, the tan men, this is totally the kind of shit they'd pull. So just be on the lookout and maybe investigate why those guns are there. And Orn pretty much says, okay, we'll do that. And also uh, I'm turning them into you so that you know that if you did find them on your own, I had absolutely nothing to do with them and probably no one in the lower city did. Yeah. So uh, that part is important given, uh, unlike a lot of science fiction settings where for reasons related to state dysfunction, there's usually a conspicuous absence of gun control. Uh, Raj absolutely prohibits its conquered civilizations from having any sort of weaponry. Mm -hmm. 
And also, like, at the broad civilizational ideological level, right? Because they wouldn't even allow the existence of technology of weaponry that would threaten them, right? As we saw with the Garcidae. Yeah. Although um, that, in turn, makes it a little weird, because why prohibit weapons that literally can't possibly threaten your ability to impose order? I think it just comes from, like, the broad, top-down view of, like, it's not good for us if people are able to kill each other we want them to be following our systems of justice instead i guess but the way that even the suggestion of crime is talked about at least on shizuna so far there you get the sense that this is extremely orderly in the intimidated way that some places are well yeah but i figure it's also like the rajai sell themselves on being an empire that will bring law, order, and civilization to wherever they go, right? So that's what they have to do. They have to make sure that everything is very tamped down on, because otherwise you might get, like, riots or rebellions or whatever. Fair. And um, um, I, I guess in sort of a North Korean way, crime detracts from what the state can output. Yeah, like it, it's just a loss to productivity. Now, these aren't very productive people anyway, in the sense of like making exports, you know, they're, they're just kind of yeah. living their lives. But yeah, there, there's clearly like the tan men we see kind of have a view of these people where they're probably going to be replaced by people that can do that kind of thing which brings us to the tan men. so after having that whole conversation with the the people down well actually just one more thing i wanted to say about this this is an interesting view of the relationship that someone would have especially that like a conquered people would have with an evil space empire right because the regi are an evil space empire pretty unambiguously and these are like a conquered and oppressed people and also like an ethnic minority the orzians but it's interesting that they would look to the ragi and be like okay but you don't give a shit about our local issues so we actually can trust you to be fair or at least like more fair than trying to do fair enough that we won't just try to avoid you in this you know and it definitely points to like the head priestess of the cult of ict who like wants Lieutenant Orn or Lieutenant to Orn to stay there because clearly these people have built up a personal trust for Lieutenant Orn that allows them to come to her with this kind of thing when they probably wouldn't do that if it was just some chucklehead who knows what they're going to do. Yeah, like any of the apparently many people who are angling to replace Orn at her job. Yeah, and like... It is kind of contrasted with what the Orsian who reports these guns says, because she basically says, I have to come to you for this because you and the Tanmint are the same kind of people. You're basically both rich foreigners who see yourselves as better than everybody else. And so you would be inclined to trust their word over mine if it came down to that. But I think the fact that the first thought was, so I'll go talk to you so that I can get my story straight rather than just like, I'll try and hide these guns does say something interesting. Fair. Oh, and aside. Wait, we're doing one of those uh, since you used since you referred to the cult of Ict rather than the divine, the character. Yeah. Um, I can't remember why I was thinking about this, but why why, how, when, why did cult get its current highly specific sense? Like, 
in it, when when people talk about like classical antiquity, it means often just a religion. And mm-hmm. in the French Revolution, the like you had the cult of reason, which was which Robespierre prescribed in favor of his own deistic cult of the supreme being. And mm-hmm. there, it obvious since they call themselves that, it's clearly not being used as used in the negative sense, just as some sort of religious thing that, for whatever reason, is not probably due to politics, is not called a church. Yeah. Where does it get its current highly specific sense of like a charismatic leader centered, uh, abusive, insular religious group when it I used to know. just mean a religious group too small to field its own army? <clears throat> I don't know. Did, did you do any looking into where that comes from? No, I'll uh, I'll try to remember that I asked this question. I um, don't know precisely where that sense of the word came from. And listeners, since we are now going to be recording at the rate we release, instead of trying to get an entire book out of the way before its first episode has released, if anyone else has an answer to that question before episode three of Ancillary Justice drops, we would heartily approve and we'll mention it when we record episode three. Mm-hmm. So anyway... Orn uh, on goes to the Tanmint for a dinner, largely seemingly out of social obligation and maybe so that she can kind of get the vibe on whether there's anything going on with that, since the Orsians suggested that they're, you know, that this is that this is the M.O. of the Tanmint is to plant evidence to give justification to come and kill people. And the Tanmint do not make a good showing of themselves. I think it's fair to say they come off as aristocratic racists who would be really appalling uh, neighbors. They they think that the Orsians are a fundamental, like racially and ethnically averse to work and self-improvement people, that all their problems are their own fault, that they that the, the reason for them being so poor is because they spend all their money working on a, like, a trying to send it to a rundown temple on the planet, that the, that the reason that they are in bad straits economically is that they have no reason to ever go out and work because they can just fish in the swamps all day. So it's like a very detached and like inaccurate to the view on the ground view of what's going on. Because the for the Orsians, uh, their primary concern is like, well, we do want to fish in these swamps but the natural environment has been fucked up and so government policy now says we can't fish in any of the really in any of the areas with lots of fish and those 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 areas were shut off because they they want to let the population of fish replenish and let the natural environment recover and the tenmen say oh yeah that's because the orgians didn't manage their own natural resources well and they they overfished and or lieutenant on suggests well, do you think dredging up the the river to sell mud for like holy religious significant purposes might be might have something to do with the ecological upset? And the ten men are like, ah, maybe, but I'm sure it's their fault anyway. So that actually that was not what stuck the the aristocratic assholery is not what stuck out to me about that conversation, or at least not in not the aristocratic part of it. Uh-huh. What struck me was the way that so it's it's not clear if there's actually like an ethnic difference here, mm-hmm. if there's some sort of racial boundary that would be obvious to the Shasunans and totally 
incomprehensible or unimportant to literally anyone else. Mm. But the I get the vibe that on is in is interpreting it as a racial thing and getting getting incensed at that because, well, after all, you're you're Radshai now. There are no races. There is just Raj. So why are you talking about these separate groups as if they had any reality? Which uh, is not the most edifying reason for getting upset at racism, but, you know, kinda. I'll take it. Like, I could see that, but I, I could see that if the Ten Men pointed to literally any physical thing about the about the Orsians. Like, but there's never any description of their physical... I, I mean, I guess she's implying, like, a lack of moral character, which might then relate back into some racialized idea about a difference in intelligence or whatever. But I, I, I just don't think that's really there. I'm pretty sure the book uses the phrase ethnicity or ethnic group, or it uses the phrase ethnic tensions to describe what's going on. On when she talks to Ananda Miadmai later... Uh, says uh, th there are ethnic tensions here, like difficulties with that. So I think that's what's going on. And I think it's I think it's pretty clear based on the conversation that she then goes on to have with Skyat that she pretty much is just mad because the Tan Men are like living a more luxurious and privileged life than the Orsians and don't recognize that that's kind of bad or like unethical or that it's especially unethical to like sort of exploit them or at least like profit while they suffer, you know, and, and then turn around and say that the Orsians are be being treated better than they deserve to be. Hmm. Yeah. I, I think Juan just be... has like an egalitarian view. I, I think she's like unusually moral by the standards we would use rather than just being an expression of the particular kind of you are all equal in the eyes of the state in terms of we only care about your ability kind of thing that Rajai probably have going on. Fair enough. I might be projecting some of my own historical experience of race relations onto that. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. Which I'm uh, usually good at noticing when I do that, so... Hmm. Oh, also, textual correction, I gave the, the Orsian's name as Daz A, and it's Den's A. Not that that matters much, that but... Sound, yeah, that sounds more familiar. Mm -hmm. One the, of the, the things that... Sorry, go ahead. Separately, something... I, I like that the Orsians are so congenitally incapable of being direct that one ask feels the need to lampshade it. Like, yeah, they're, they're having the, when when Denze comes in to talk about the guns and is that they're, they're sort of having a meta conversation that Lieutenant on clearly total understands perfectly. It's like, oh, I'm sure your friend would never fish illegally. Says, no, of mm -hmm. course not. But I don't want her in trouble either. She maybe sometimes she digs near the prohibited zones. Yeah, she digs tubers and, near the prohibited zones. They're best when you eat them right out of the bud. But, you know, you can cut them up and cook them. And clearly on is like, yeah, yeah, I don't care about the tubers. Yeah, like, look, you, you already you're already you came to me because this is important. If I cared about the tubers, we'd be talking about the tubers. Right. Or like, look, man, there's a certain amount of crime. There's like a level of crime that I don't want to know you're doing it if you're doing it. And that's the level that the fishing thing is at. Like, I don't really care if you go to the edge of the of the forbidden zone and fish there. Like, 
whatever. <laughs> what are we actually here to talk about? Yeah. And just, I, I like that. I like what's accomplished by having that, like the, the level of this is an appropriate case to tell, not show. And I like the way that it's done that. Yeah. That it, it would, this is a rare case where it would actually be more appropriate for the narrator to say. Yeah. Because... And one the, the, and does comment on it at the start. She says something like, while the Orsians are remarkably blunt in some cases, in others, it is impossible to make them get to the point any sooner than they want to. And I think this points to just like, the Rajai have a very particular idea of what p propriety and politeness is, and so any other culture is going to seem weird to them. Uh, I think from like having conversations like this in travels, I think this is th this might just be a, a non-urbanite thing. Like I, I don't think mm. it's Raj specifically finding other cultures weird. This is a, a thing that city folk might frequently find weird about people from someplace less cosmopolitan. Hmm. Yeah, that that could definitely be true as well. Uh, what else happened? But yeah, so, so they they investigate. Uh, oh, I wanted to mention before I forgot, we get a we get an aside where one asks internal narration specifically mentions that Amat does not Amat is not a god who demands that his followers not acknowledge other gods. So the ambiguity her that followers, I followers right because her followers. Yeah. In any case, Amat. So the. I was I correctly identified one of or one of the three possibilities that I that I identified as to how Rajai religious assimilation proceeds it was correct that Amat worship is mandatory but nothing else is suppressed. Yeah, There's, there is a supreme religion, but all the others are tolerated. You know, up to breaking the law. Yeah. By the way, it's in the same way that it's Anna and Miadmai. It's Amaat, not Amat, or at least according to the audiobook reader interesting okay then i i will go tech go literally textual for a moment and say that i'll try to remember that but one this is another case where an apostrophe would be tremendously helpful because it's yeah. spelled a-m-a-a-t and two mm -hmm. radshai is pronounced apparently by because judging by the way you've been saying it radshai is pronounced by the narrator with two syllables rather than the three that would be appropriate given that it's spelled r-a-d-c-h-a-a-i like radshai yeah, Rajai would make sense under if that's if there are no double vowels, as the those that, two that examples could imply. Kind of be. It, I, I'm not really sure if that's exactly how it's being mm -hmm. pronounced. It's a little hard to tell because the audiobook reader puts on a lot of different accents and pronounces the words differently within different accents because they're supposed to be from different places. Interesting. Okay, that. Well, we'll get a bigger sample of one-esque narrating things, and maybe we can figure that out. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, I am remembering now that uh, Peter Kenny told us how rare it is for audiobook readers to be able to consult the author for specifics. Mm -hmm. So I, I wish that were a more common practice. Yeah, it would as, be handy. As an insufferable pedant. Yeah. Anyway, so speaking of the Raja religion, yes, we learned that Amaat doesn't care, or, or well, the, the, the religious followers of Amaat do not believe that you only need to worship Amaat. It's, it's fine if you worship other gods, but you just have to hold Amaat as the supreme deity. They also do prayers in the morning that are usually, that are always the same for every soldier. So one ask often like thinks about it in the morning, even though she doesn't recite it anymore, which I think says something interesting about her relationship to her former life. Uh, and um, 
So we we heard earlier about a ritual where you toss a bunch of coins and then interpret the meaning of how they fell and where they fell and which side they landed on. And the interpretation of omens is apparently very complex, but there are only so many possible configuration states. So Justice of Torin often helps the priest to do the reading because sometimes the coin, like often the coins will land in a way that they have landed in the past thousand years. Yeah, there are yeah there are only so many omens to read but the fact that she has to is interesting because it makes me wonder what is the standard that the priests are applying and is like you know i'm thinking about this and i'm like are the priests supposed to really just say something that's going to be significant to the crowds that they're in front of right like is this kind of a you know tarot mysticism kind of situation where it's like part of the interpretation is that you're supposed to consider context and is interpreting it literally as if you get these same symbols it always means this same thing actually not right as far as the religion is practiced even if it is textually correct and is this a thing where because Esk and Justice of Torin are taught these things and told that they should consider them literally true, that is separating her from how actual followers of the Amaat religion practice it. That's an interesting question. I was going to draw the comparison to tarot, but I don't know enough about actually reading the tarot to to draw contrasts where they're appropriate. Mm-hmm. So what I think I'm going to do is consult a mutual friend who knows far more about the tarot than i do Mm. i also did think in this especially given the the comment that one esk had earlier about consider phlebas do you remember in consider phlebas there was that one thing where the protagonist of that book horza had to do some prayers for the people he was working with and he said like he he told them frankly i'll 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 do what you need me to do but i don't believe it in your religion i'm fighting this war for other reasons and they said because you don't have a soul only the behavior of devotion is necessary not the belief and i feel like they don't bring up the soul out of the blue they specifically they say that as a non-adiran that only the behavior of devotion is required not the belief and horza asks well what about his immortal soul and the adirans just say what a mortal creature with an immortal soul yeah, and and I feel like that's that's where we are with the the Ragi, right? They they basically don't believe that ancillaries are people, and so they and they don't believe certainly that shipmines are people. So they don't care about how they interpret religion, but they, but they do occasionally find it useful for the ships to know things about religion, which leaves them in an odd state. Yeah, uh, but it, to be clear, though, it's. It, in case we didn't address this or in case it's relevant later, it's only the ancillaries they regard as unsold, as uns, as not unsold. As far as they're concerned, humans and only humans in a relatively unmodified state are. Yeah. So there, there's, there's a distinction there between things that are people, things that are ragi and things that are like human, because I think if you become sufficiently unaugmented, if you become sufficiently augmented or changed from your actual human body, they'll stop considering you human. And if you're not human, you can't be ragi. And if you're not ragi, you can't be civilized. And if you're not civilized, you don't get the protections of law and citizenship and stuff. And like these distinctions are talked about a lot. So I think that's how that works is the reason that ancillaries are considered 
not people ultimately comes down to a belief that they are not human, which ultimately is fundamentally because they're so augmented, or that might be the justification they say, but I think a lot of what the text is getting at thematically, as I said in the in the opening section, is like, the real reason is just it's useful to the state and useful to this society if they can not think about these things as people. Yeah. Oh, actually, your 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 mention of the whole of the civilization thing from the conversation between On and Skyat in this section just caused me to draw a contrast that I didn't think of in time to put it in my notes. Uh huh. So uh, culture called itself the culture so as not to claim a monopoly on it, and uh, Raj calls itself civilization to claim a monopoly on it. Yeah, yeah. We we so, later hear a term. We we hear an argument in this chapter, which is basically like On says to Skyat, "What is the difference between civilized people and uncivilized people?" And Skyat answers, "One of them is civilized, right?" Or, or sorry, On says, "What is the difference between citizens and non-citizens?" Skyat says, "One of them is civilized." And the and One esque narration clarifies that this is a joke that makes more sense in Rajai because in Rajai. The word for being civilized is the word for being a citizen. You are considered civilized if you are a citizen, and you cannot be civilized unless you are a citizen. So it is a thing that is conferred as legal status, and that is the only real distinguisher. And in the non-English language that we're observing translation conventions from, all of those words are Radchai. Yeah. Um, I was going to make it make a the two genders joke, but that doesn't work in in the language that's being discussed, yeah. which somehow makes it funnier. Let's see. So Ugh. what else do we learn? We learn a bit about the Tanmind religion as well. It suggests that space is heavenly. Orbital station environments are the like true natural home of humanity and planets are the place of the dead. So there is religious significance to the idea of going to a planet and then returning back to orbital, which probably is a part of why there's this tension because uh space within station, much smaller than a no sorry not orbital just an orbiting space station um, yeah because we learn that any legally binding contract has to be made in the temple of amat which is very interesting because it seems like a fucking big hassle so the, it this isn't the first fnf setting that i've encountered that in that's also sort of a thing in brandon sanderson's mistborn uh -huh. where the the obligators have to witness business deals and okay. the more basically the more money is changing hands the more senior the obligator required but it means well for one thing it makes it extremely hard to keep any business dealings secret from the government for any length of time unless you're abandoning all pretense of enforcement yeah but actually now that you brought up the temple of amat again that reminds me of one of the other things that provoked that that realization or the that, that I noticed in the scene that confirms or in the aside that confirms one of my guesses about religious assimilation. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. It's mentioned that the divine of Ict, the one who is so desperate to keep on as the local administrator, she's mentioned as not having seen her way to demoting uh, her God in its own temple, nor to incorporating the Ratchai rites into her own. So that actually has some interesting implications for how a, how some planets might look under Radshai rule in the long term, you might mm -hmm. not be able to tell the difference externally because every temple of a foreign god becomes that plus a temple of a mot, or at least many temples, be enough temples become that, that the the observances required at a temple of a mot, like the, the signing of contracts, um, 
happen in what were originally the temples of other gods, but were not destroyed or replaced. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because it's like, I mean, definitely at some point we're going to have to look into like history of Rome stuff because the Ragi Empire is very, it's drawing on some things from the Roman Empire. And one of those things is the policy that the Roman Empire had of you don't fuck with local customs, like not for no reason, right? You, you, you. If they're worshiping their gods or whatever, but they're still paying their taxes, it doesn't really matter to us. And that seems to be kind of the the vibe here is we we don't care if you continue your society in a way that kind of makes that that is similar to what it was as long as you acknowledge our ultimate supremacy and eventually, if that state goes on long enough, that is kind of going to. M- lead to more and more of your people adopting more and more of our observances and our ways of doing things right like it's if you have to acknowledge amaat all the time and you have and you have to acknowledge for certain legal and like technical things you're doing when interacting with the state and you, no other god is actually necessary i feel like that ultimately is probably going to just lead to you having less and less devoted followers of religions that don't make themselves necessary in some way, especially if the the worship of Amaat can fill the role of like a community and a thing you devote yourself to and a thing that gives you a set of common values and stuff, even if it's still an option to do other things. Like, it seems like a relatively soft kind of cultural imperialism compared to the much more straightforward and obvious, like, physical warfare imperialism that the Ragi also do. Yeah, and it's – I like that you drew the Roman parallel because there's also an interesting contrast. The Romans were happy to – in a lot of cases, like the Greek one, which is where the term comes from, the the – the Ratchai specifically do not go for the Interpretatio Greca option that was also among my list of possibilities. Amaat mm-hmm. is – the light of Amaat is brought to these planets that previously did not have it. So it is not accepted as a thing that was always the local religion in the way that the Roman Empire accepted it. Yeah. And I uh, kind of wonder what's up with that, but – I mean, fundamentally, I think what it probably comes down to is that the people in charge of the Ragi are basically just materialists and see religion as a means to an end and therefore other religions also as means to ends. And so they don't really care if some people worship some other things as long as it's not a threat to state power. But that's probably just having read Foundation recently. Maybe. I, I'm seeing a sort of parallel to – never mind. I, I was going to say I see some parallels to Christianity, but I don't want to pause the recording for three minutes while I organize my thoughts on that. Yeah, so we'll pretend I didn't say that. that. <laughs> cut that. Cut that. What's the other thing? So broad broad strokes, we get the picture of a changing political landscape being part of the time of this flashback because monotheists are being given more allowances because now they're allowed to sign their contracts on the steps of the Temple of Emmaus rather than having to go in and people from lower houses such as on are getting higher positions such as being in charge of security on this planet and that was very much not the case like a hundred years ago apparently things are getting more meritocratic in the entrance exams and corruption is also being revealed and challenged in places like ilan or wherever that was 
Yeah. So there's like a, a broad sense of change and a sense of what you might call liberalization going on, like over the past hundred years or so that is apparently like contentious, but it's happening. Yeah, I, I'm interested to see this flashback arc thicken because of what we learn about the position that on is in. Yeah. The the other things we get in this chapter, just real quick, uh, during the dinner with the Tanman people, one of them, Jin Sinan, talks about her cousin's niece, who is about to take the aptitude tests to get government service for, like, for the Rajai. She wants to get into a good position, like a civil servant or military or whatever. And she's, she's worried that this niece isn't going to win any good positions because as of now, only Orsians have actually succeeded on those aptitude tests and gotten any postings. And she thinks the Orsians are being rewarded for surrendering first, right? They're being given, like, a cooperation. Like, special considerations because they cooperated. And Incident also also says that her niece, that same niece, was harassed while visiting Ors, but Oneask was watching her the whole time and says that that didn't happen, that's a lie. And they all then leave, and Ors and Skyat discuss politics on the way home. The, the picture we get is basically Ors is like a soft egalitarian, maybe, or is at least like uncomfortable with the idea of other people suffering to let others live in luxury. And Skyat is like, agrees that that's what go is going on but basically thinks ah whatever it's that's it is what it is and it's not our place to worry about it that's just how life is because she was born into a life of privilege and that's that's pretty much it for this chapter yeah let me take a quick skim i found the reference to shields as armor a bit weird especially since uh, they mentioned that for whatever reason many soldier rajai soldiers will wear armor under their shields yeah, so apparently um, there's force fields, but also occasionally physical armor gets used in some circumstances. I think that's probably because of what is referenced later, that an ancillary can be defeated even with its force shield if it is caught unawares and doesn't have the chance to raise the force shield. So maybe the armor is for situations like that. Yeah, to give you to keep you alive until you can turn on the real protection. Or yeah. it's a dune shield thing where the shield only stops things that are dangerous above a certain level and a sl slow enough projectile could still like knock you and knock your head in maybe but the shield is described as being nigh on invincible to pretty much everything except that one special gun so i feel like <clears throat> if there was a weakness like that that would have been a consideration especially because if you remember in chapter five when dr stragan is back one ask thinks you know if I had a shield and I left it on all night, there would be no way for Stragan to kill me. So presumably, if there, if you could just get through it by, like, slowly stabbing somebody, then Stragan could totally kill her in her sleep through the shield. Point. Okay, yeah, that, that interpretation is probably to be discarded then. So let's move on to five. Okay, so in five, we get back to the uh, presence, or... Yeah, the present of the of the book. And we learn a bit about the history of Cyberden through a few vignettes. So on our first assignment, Cyberden was kind of fresh out of the Academy vibes. And Justice of Torin, uh, one-esque at that time, was concerned that Cyberden was unfit for the job she was doing, particularly because she seemed to enjoy lording her power and authority over a bunch of prisoners in a cave that she had been assigned to watch. One-esque uh, muses that, like, if she 
beat the prisoners to death, or if she beat the, the hell out of the prisoners, no one would care. If she killed them, probably no one would care either, because the prisoners only represent value to the Empire right now in terms of being potential future ancillary bodies, and there's no shortage of those. So Cyverton can kind of do whatever she wants to these people, and Oneesk tries to help the people a little bit by bringing Cyverton her tea at the moment of sort of the peak of her anger to distract her from what, you know, what what the prisoners are doing. Uh, one interesting thing is that in addition to implying empathy for the captives... Her actions also seem to suggest that she considers becoming an ancillary to be, in some ways, a, a, a kind fate, or at least kind relative to being killed or left as miserable prisoners. Any comments on that specific scene? Not really. The The things that are interesting or horrifying are things that one-esque it points out in narration. Like, yeah, we have so many people ready to be lobotomized and uh, tur turned into, uh, like, ship telepresence that we don't care if our officers kill people actually i will comment it's interesting to allow that anyway because well one of the reasons that militaries historically don't do as much murder as you'd expect with defeated enemies apart from the risk of reciprocity is that uh well the problem is that people who do that keep doing it and you really don't want you already have to keep a pretty tight leash on most soldiers like a large fraction of military life is just dedicated to keeping soldiers on a leash. Mm -hmm. And you really don't want to have to deal with the kind of people who do that recreationally. They're a problem. Like they're hard, even if you have them managed and they're almost impossible to manage. And when you fail to manage them, the consequences are much more severe. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So anyway, we then cut further into the future. Cyberden is an officer telling a younger officer under her command to keep propriety and hierarchy in mind when it comes to romance. Because this younger officer is in love with another officer. I wish there were names that I could remember. So the, basically the complaint that Cyberden makes is you are offering intimacy and love to someone who is of a lesser house than you. And that might lead to that person offering you clientage when it ought to be the other way around. And this is complicated, and I don't know if I really understand it yet. So client, I think this is another Roman thing, right? The the client system, like of patrons and clients. There, there are variations in basically every civilization that's tried to run an empire. Okay, but the basic gist is the, the patron will give you some material money and help with stuff and yada yada. And you will do various service work for them. And sometimes these agreements are multi-generational and, and it's like more prestigious the more generations that a family has been in your service. So really high tier houses will often have entire other houses that serve them. Yeah, like seriously long-term contracts. But, you you know, you, you you if you complete those contracts, you're in a position to get clientage from more prosperous people because you have a record. So, yeah, but in, I, 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 I like, guess in part, sorry, go ahead. There's certainly a sense in which like there are obviously patterns. There are obviously ways for this to break down. And it, there are obvious mechanisms for abuse and the implication that there isn't a lot you can do about it. But if the, the implication is that, you know, two or three generations of sustained effort is a path to prosperity. Yeah, possibly. But like, 
Okay, so there's a lot going on here. For one thing, clientage implies hierarchy, and it seems like a very classist kind of hierarchy. You have people with material wealth, and you have people who labor, and one's above the other, right? But it also seems like clientage is basically an expected part of romance in this society, in the way that marriage is an expected part of it in, you know, modern times. It's like, the it's the sort of socially approved path you're meant to go down as lovers. But then there's also an element of like some kind of additional obligation that's clear to the characters in the scene, but wasn't clear to me because the worry is that the very young lieutenant is going to have to, uh, is going to have clientage offered to her when she ought to be offering clientage to this other officer because the young officer comes from a wealthy family. Um, and I think the issue is that the officer, uh, like the other officer, is technically senior to the young officer, and that who can give clientage to who is determined based on the individual hierarchy relationship rather than the family's hierarchy relationship. But that is not where my head went initially. My, my immediate thought was, oh, this would make a lot of sense if the very young officer was a woman and the other one was a man, because that's like a classic romance plot thing right like there's some social dynamic such as you know the expectation that the the man is supposed to be the provider uh which clashes with the character's desire to be together and like their social circumstances and then you know drama ensues from that but of course the ratchai don't have gender so for a minute when cyberden said you shouldn't offer intimacy to her on those terms. I was genuinely like, is this officer getting chewed out for failing to top in this relationship? Hmm. So to project, since we later get established that Rajai sex and reproduction work the same, well, for some value of same, work broadly similarly to, you know, any human civilization that we're familiar with. I think that... There's and I, I might be projecting here. It's obvious I might be projecting, but it is mm -hmm. just possible that we have some ambiguity introduced by the translation convention from Radshai that would not be present if this conversation were being had actually in English. Well, but and that's the other thing is like that, definitely one esque says Radshai don't care about gender, right? She says that, but also her translation does use she all the time rather than using like a neuter pronoun. And the, like, clearly Wanesk cannot actually tell when a culture does care about gender or not or why or how they interpret that, right? So I, I think there's a very plausible reading of this where in the same way that the culture on the planet they're on in the present, I don't remember what it is, the ice world, the culture in that world does clearly have a distinguisher for gender of some kind, but one S just totally doesn't get it. There might be a distinguisher for gender within the Ragi that she's just totally blind to, which adds a dimension to this conversation that we're not seeing. Hmm. Yeah. Like, I, I think I'm... it's probably not in any way related to physical sex, because when asked questions about gender, she... When asked questions about, like, how do you make babies? Her answer is you can do it by growing them in vats or you can do it by going to the medic and having the medic like do it for you. Or you can do it by getting surgery to make it possible for you to carry a child, which is interesting 
phrasing, isn't it? Does that imply that you would both have to get an operation, but she just used the phrase, you could get surgery to be able to carry a child? That's an interesting question. I think it is like the... I. I I don't know that they would care enough to like alter genitalia to a standard, but we, and in fact, it's mentioned later in chapter seven that the specific words, it's mentioned later in chapter seven that there's, well, for one, there's almost no, that there's generally less like actual carrying of children for one mm -hmm. and for another that everyone has contraceptive implants that are presumably inserted mandatorily and removed when right. it's time to make babies. Right. That that was the, the first option she said, is go to the medic and have your contraceptive implants removed. That's how you have a kid. Because the question is, how do you have kids if you don't have gender? And the answer she gives, the answer 1S gives is go to the medic and have your contraceptives removed or get, use an artificial womb or go to the medic and have them Im give you the ability to carry a child via surgery. Yeah. And like, this is very intentional, right? Because there's a conversation later with Cyberton, sorry, with Dr. Stragan and 1Esk, where Stragan asks some questions about gender because 1Esk misgendered someone. And Stragan says that her answers are so like uniquely wrong and like missing the point that only a Rajai would answer them that way. Anyway, other stuff in this chapter. Um, so. Cyberden in the present is recovering from her calf addiction uh, very slowly and not very well. One ask asks Cyberden, why did you start taking calf, given that it's so addictive and bad and stuff? And Cyberden says some unknown third party, she just says she, said it would make things clearer and that while it did make things clearer, it took larger and larger doses to be effective and withdrawal became very painful. And Onesk again refutes the idea of pure reason unclouded by feeling being superior to reasoning with emotion. She made this point earlier when she was first like thinking about Kef, but now she verbally disagrees with Cyberton saying it. And Cyberden says, I thought it did at the time, which seems to imply that even Cyberden doesn't really totally buy the idea that being without emotion improved her ability to think. Hmm. Yeah, the, well, there's, there's also just like some generic descent into addiction talk. Yeah, definitely. I'm still not clear on One-esque's motive for concealing her identity from Savarden. Well, I would say... Probably just that power dynamic is weird, right? Like, Cyberden used to be her commanding officer, and now Onesk wants to be treated as an equal, so it would be difficult. It would make that more difficult, right? It would make it more complicated. Plus, she's just hiding her identity in general, and she can't trust Cyberden, so she can't just... It would be unwise for her to go around telling Cyberden... Uh, anything that she doesn't want blab to the next person that, that Cyberden gets the chance to talk to. I guess. And when if she does get back under the influence of Kef, then there would be no reason, nothing stopping her from telling someone who asked. Yeah. Um, uh, oh, we're, we're past the section where it appears, but, mm -hmm. or no, we're in the section where it appears. The, no, that's actually chapter six, but I'll bring it up now. There's a, Brief during the the conversation between On and Skyat in the next chapter, Seven Isa is talking to uh, One Esk, 
like the the soldiers talking to one esque, uh-huh. and is worried about having upset the justice of Torin as communicated to through one esque. Yeah, and still is like still ships have feelings, and then no no, no. Uh, intermo- it, it's, I, I'm pretty sure it's ships have feelings question mark It's a question. She's unsure. I'm I'm looking at the text. Okay, but and then the then one asks in her monologue says without feelings, insignificant decisions became excruciating attempts to compare endless arrays of inconsequential things. It's just easier to handle those with emotions. Yeah, which and, is interesting. It's a very utilitarian way to look at your own, like the the principles of your own design as an artificial being. So I see some indirect parallels to that in the way that the culture thinks about the way humans make decisions, like culture minds think about the way humans make decisions. Mm-hmm. But also I see a more a much more direct parallel buried in the archives of Schlock Mercenary, where someone's talking to a ship AI who's started making jokes. And uh, someone comments that what well, you weren't designed to make jokes. You were you're supposed to be a purely tactical machine. And the AI responds, well, yeah, but when I studied the range of problems that I might have to that I might encounter, uh, I found that passion, humor, anger, and a wide range of other meat space artifacts were critical to understanding the wide range of opponents I might face. Yeah, that's interesting. Got to sort of model and, other people effectively, and definitely uh, Justice of Torin uh, knows that she's going to have to interact with people. Yeah, and then follows up. Also, well timed laughter makes me a much more terrifying killer. <laughs> Mm. In this same conversation, Oneesque again struggles with the idea of suicide and like the problem of suicide from a philosophical perspective with like, why, Cyberden, are you continuing to live if you're in so much pain that you want to die and your calf addiction is going to make the rest of your life, you know, like pretty difficult and also and it's not even particularly stigmatized in the society that you're trying to escape. Yeah. And it's like. Everything that you probably expected from your life now can't happen because you're from a your your house has been diminished. The Rajai have changed like a whole bunch of stuff is going to make your life bad by the standards that you probably would judge it by. So why don't you just end your life? Why don't you just go to the medic and do that? And one ask seems preoccupied with this question. I have a theory as to why, and I'll say it later. So one ask then notes that since the time of Cyberdin, there's been an end to the Rajai policy of conquest, the, the Rajai don't conquer things anymore, and a treaty with the alien Presca, which could be viewed as humiliating, and also Cyberdin's particular noble house has been much diminished. Yeah. Uh, so then, um, Dr. Stragon returns. Um, she was just kind of hiding somewhere. She did not, in fact, flee the scene. She considers the situation and decides not to kill anybody yet. And so they have a bit of a conversation. Oneesk admits that she wants to buy a, a Gai Sedai gun from Stragan, one of those cool ones that can blow up ships. And that's why she came here. Oneesk muses to herself that very few living people know that the gun exists, though that list probably includes her and Cyberden and Amanda Nandai, or whatever yeah, that not, name is. Not, not Cyberden. Cyberden specifically does not know why they're here. No, Cyberden doesn't know why they're here, but she does know that the gun exists. Right, or she knows that a gun exists that could do it, not necessarily that the gun being looked for now exists. Yeah, like the gun is should be somewhere because she knows the, that a gun capable of destroying a Rajai ship exists. 
Yeah, because the Gaussidae care a lot about the number five. They hold it as like a, a significant number. And so they did a lot of things in multiples of five and they sent like 25 diplomats and 24 guns got recovered and nobody really looked too closely into that. But it has led one ask to believe that probably there's another one hanging around there somewhere. And so because she heard that Stragan had all these Garcidae artifacts, she made the deduction that if if there's anywhere to look for the gun, it's her. Fair. And um, and comments privately or wait, privately or out loud. I'm checking the text. In any case, ponders that if or observes that if a one esque was able to deduce the gun's continued existence and infer its location, then Anna Enderman I is certainly capable of doing so. Yeah, but it, it's apparently been quite difficult to track down Stragan, so hopefully Anna Enderman I is not on their tail. Stragan, oh, so one esque then it says, it admits to Stragan, the reason I want the gun is I want to kill Anna Enderman I. And Strigan argues that since the ruler of the Regi has thousands of bodies in hundreds of different locations, he would be impossible to kill with just a gun, no matter how good a gun it is. But Oneask insists she wants to try. Strigan, here using the masculine pronoun for an Andermianai, I don't know if we can take anything from that. She did also use a masculine pronoun for for Cyberden, but... We don't know what the gender <laughs> norms in this particular society are, so I don't know if that indicates anything. Yeah. And in fact, we just know that they're ex they're probably different from ours, and they're definitely very different from the from those in Rajai society, because she comments, only a Rajai would misgender people like you do. And I don't yeah, know if I... that's because it's text, I don't know if that's only a um, misgendering something misgendering people as you are doing is something that only a Radshai would do or misgendering people in the specific weird random way that you that you are in particular are doing it is distinctively Radshai. yeah and like her her one-esque defense there is like I can't see under your clothes, which is interesting because it implies an idea of gender in, that is basically gender is sex, which is, you know, just just wrong. But also, like, specifically, uh, Dr. Stragan finds it confusing. Her response is like bafflement. And then she says, you really are a Ragi, right? You must really be a Ragi to basically subtext to say some stupid shit like that, which I imagine, you know, I, I don't know if it's this in particular, but the vibe I get is she has like, in, she has some incredibly obvious thing within whatever the, 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 the culture of this world is, but th that one asks is looking in all the wrong places. But yeah, as I mentioned at near the beginning of the episode, now we have one of our major arcs, some mm -hmm. long sustained effort because the previous section mentioned one ask has been at this by our standards quite a while. Yeah. And we, we get a mention somewhere that citizens in the Ragi live about 200 years outside yeah, of Krakus. But, but we don't know to what extent that applies to ancillaries because they are augmented. Yeah. Well, yeah. Because they're cyborgs. Yeah. Then a Cyberden wakes up. One esque takes some joy in giving Cyberden orders to like make food and stuff, and kind of reversing the role of command that she had with her. And Cyberden snobbily refuses and uh, says like I am not your servant. And One esque just decks her. Yeah. Very very uh, thoroughly. 
Yeah. So some interesting think- things here. In the flashback sections, we see that Oneesk is capable of and willing to be, like, at least a little insubordinate because she, like, delays giving Cyberden her tea in order to protect captives and, like, gives Cyberden a shirt with a, a torn cuff and doesn't repair the cuff, so, presumably so that she'll look worse in front of her superiors when she's getting promoted. Oneesk also says to Cyberden in the present, you are where you are because of decisions you made for your Yourself, which is interesting because it's like it goes against the idea of Amaat wills it, right? Because that's saying everything is predetermined, everything is based on fate, you can't change anything, you can only interpret the will of God. But that is explicitly a like you do have freedom of choice and moral and practical responsibility for your actions. I mean, you well, the the, the there is some contradiction, but even I think under a weird cosmic. De- Determinism like this, you or even under a cosmic sort of teleology like this, you might argue that failing, either failing to correctly interpret the will of Amaat or failing to act as the interpretations indicate that you should, is you're literally derailing the intended course of the universe. Hmm. Yeah, but I don't know if they would agree that it's possible for you to even do that, right? Maybe. Like, it's possible for you to misunderstand, but if you do misunderstand, you were supposed to misunderstand. So, never mind. I'm not going to start a conversation about Calvinism on this podcast. Fair um, enough. Next <laughs> note, Oneesk prefers music that can be sung in a chorus. That's her favorite kind. And because of that, she presumably misses being part of an ancillary unit for that reason, among others, because her she now has no other voices. She also apparently has an icon that's like this really complicated, like intricate thing that is common among the Ragi, and she's keeping it for some unknown reason. The Ragi word for coincidence implies significance, which is fun. And Dr. Stragan assumes that an ancillary would never cry, which is interesting because it's people assuming, as they have several times throughout this, that ancillaries can't have feelings, right? Like, the the whole argument about ancillaries between the head priest and Lieutenant On is the head priest basically saying, I trust ancillaries more because they don't get like they don't have fits of peak where they will want to prove themselves over somebody and do something terrible or violent or rapacious or whatever because they they're just not like that basically subtext because they don't have emotions because they're just machines because they're just carrying out their their orders and their programming but like while it while it's i guess true that ancillaries are better controlled it's also true that they have emotions hmm that they do seem to, even if they're sort of affected, not in the sense that they're insincere, but in the sense that they're possessed on purpose where they might deliberately not be. Well, I think that's a that's a distinction, right? I think in the case of the past, in the like flashback chapters, when we see any of Oneesk's, any of Justice of Torrance ancillaries trying to affect emotion, it's like them you know when they smile it's something they have to intentionally do they don't show any emotion on their own but they will do things because of what fundamentally has to be emotional reasoning right there has to there like 
she says there's no reason that we need to protect these prisoners, right? It, it's not a militarily useful thing. It's not a strategically useful thing. We're not trying to win hearts and minds here. We're trying to conquer the place, and these people are prisoners anyway. But she still does, right? Which kind of has to be because she cares about them as people. You know, similarly, she has to kind of hate Cyverden, and that hate had to have been kind of brewing for a while. And she says she doesn't. She said she never cared much about Cyverden either way. But the first thing she she does more or less when she gets in a room with Cyberton is she starts giving her orders and then decks her. Clearly, this is a person with some resentment, and clearly the cuff le- the cuff tear thing is also indicative of some resentment. It's just not she's not interpreting her own actions that way. Mm. Yeah, there's. So I think th- I-, I think they I think the ancillaries don't display emotion. But the ship guiding them and the, like, overall hive mind or whatever can feel emotion. Yeah, but what with the body being... What what with the, the natural reactions of the ancillary body being overridden by the control of the ship, it totally makes sense that the signs of emotion that would have occurred in the original human are not so visible under ancillary control. And I think this just plays directly into something that was said in that conversation between Skyat and Orn, right? Because during that conversation, Skyat says, one of the many benefits of civilization is that it separates you from the people who are paying the cost of your luxury, and you can choose to not think about those people if you want, if you don't want to, right? And this is this is an example of that. It is convenient to them for them to think that the ancillaries are just robots, right? That they're not, they don't have any internality that matters. They don't care about following orders. They just do. And that's like, that's a useful fantasy to have if you're frequently ordering these these ancillaries to do terrible things that you would maybe feel some guilt about making other people do. Sounds like it could be useful. Yeah. Anyway, where were we? Are we on chapter six? We it's we're definitely getting ahead on t- or getting behind on time, so we probably we should move to it. Yeah. So we return to Orn and Skya having sex while one Esk and Sevenisa play a board game. You you talked about that and the, 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 the emotion conversation happens. One Esk and I, I or... did have in my notes. I'm a little I'm a little disappointed that we learned nothing about the actual board game because like even if just a few sentences of fluff on the play of the game is a nice way to add some relief to the in-game world, like relief in the topographic sense. Hmm. It, it adds some variety. Like we we get, we get even the in, in player of games for example we got at least vague descriptions of many of the games, and it makes the world feel lived in. Yeah, yeah, to to a large degree. I mean, there is the and description like you could you could have the... given this, you could easily have given the child a few extra sentences of dialogue. I mean, there is the description in that later chapter about like oh, the Rajai tend to play games with counters or dice or cards. But counters seems to be the most popular one, and I don't know what they mean by that. (laughs) Yeah, that, so, like, it's kind of doubled down on. And also, apparently, mentioning uh, go ahead. Mentioning a board game in a work of fiction, like, there's so much opportunity to do metaphor around board games that I think you're violating Chekhov's... As we learned with Banks, right? Like, all the time he would do that. Yeah, it, like it, w- when Banks was going, you knew that there was a metaphor for something afoot by the fact that people were playing a game at all. And I, yeah. having been, maybe I've just spent 
too maybe I've just over-indexed on that, but I think that naming an in-universe board game without at least like two sentences of dialogue on the generalities of how it's played is a, v- a violation of the of Chekhov's gun rule. Hmm. Well, maybe we'll get something later. Anyway, the, the maybe only other thing people we re- will dis- maybe maybe other people will disagree with me about that. But that is how I, I feel about mentioning games in fiction. Mm-hmm. The, the only thing we really if get you say about that it's counters- dice and you mention game that doesn't require further explanation because most people know what craps is. Yeah, the the only thing we really get about counters is that it's popular and that one esque always wins, which implies that it's the kind of thing that you know benefits from be from being a giant ship computer right it, it's the kind of thing where if you've memorized all the board states you're more likely to win as opposed to like i don't know i i don't think you can really win it you can't win at craps all the time you can't but you can win a lot you can win pretty consistently at say backgammon i actually know of people a high school classmate of my dad's in fact who have played it professionally hmm like sure so there yeah. might be an element in, chance, in las but... vegas so there's there clearly is both something to gamble on and an element of strategy mm. anyway one esque and on go look at this whole gun situation they find evidence that the guns were confiscated and should have been in the rajai's auspices and authority which means that they must have been taken from where the gun where the confiscated guns are stored and then brought here which means there's probably some kind of scheme that's like all the way from the top or from near the top because the like if these are here it means some people that should have done something about this didn't do anything about this one ask notes that she saw no one who's not senior but but it's mentioned it must be someone who's not senior because someone senior enough could have erased the evidence of the guns ever having been meant to be or ever having meant to be in the armory well it's not exactly just a seniority thing but it's like well it can't be someone who had the ability to control justice of torrent specifically because if it was they wouldn't have let her remember that that she remembered these guns because she just checked her own memory of the guns rather than making an official formal request sorry yeah seniority is the wrong word it's a clearance thing even like a senior officer on the justice of ente wouldn't have had the access to do that so Mm -hmm. we know that it's probably not someone above on in the command chain yeah one ask notes that she didn't see anybody deposit the guns here and in fact that the only people who'd visited this place where the guns were deposited were the orsian who reported them and that orsian's daughter and neither of them would it would not be plausible that either of them would be involved in this so they don't know how the guns got here which is the the only the so a speculation there clearly we have some sort of the the source of this malfeasance has some sort of influence and mm-hmm. a fair amount of it. But and I thought, well, who's the the list of people from the way that the tracking of people in Radchai society is described? The list of people untracked is somewhere between short and empty. Yeah. And so I thought, well, what about Anna Ander? But there's no conceivable motive because so for for ors to be the site of the malfeasance in particular suggests that this is an effort to discredit on and thereby remove her and get someone else in the job. You really the think there's is, no motives? I can see at least three motives. I, I didn't say none. There aren't no motives. There are no motives for Anna Ander to do it because Anna Ander is the absolute ruler of hundreds of planets and has no need for a pretext on which to demote an inconsequential subordinate. What if she wants to get rid of Justice of Torin instead? 
Because Justice of Torin is put in a situation, like, if something goes wrong here, Justice of Torin is put in a situation where two of her reports will be wrong, right? Because she's reporting, oh yeah, nobody saw the guns, and nobody saw thing happen with that niece girl. So she would be directly contradicted twice. And Justice of Torin knows all these random facts. She, she says she's one of the few surviving people who knows about the about the the Garcidae, which it which implies that both her ancillaries and Justice of Torin itself were maybe destroyed, which would imply something happened between the present and the past, right? I mean, that is how time works. But yes, I take what you mean. <laughs> that might actually that's a plausible motive for present one esque ramp revenge plans. Yeah. But I still don't get why the Lord of the Raj couldn't just have the ship retired and the AI thrown into the sun. Maybe she does need a plausible reason just because it's so valuable. Maybe the ships are really rare or really hard to make more of. That's possible. Or there are just few enough of them that it would set back the Empire's plans meaningfully to lose one. Yeah, like, you, the U.S. can afford to lose an aircraft carrier, but it doesn't want to. <laughs> And I don't think I don't think okay, that makes sense. I, I don't think if the pre I think if the president was like, let's blow up this random aircraft carrier, I think there would be some questions, right? Whereas if an aircraft carrier had like irreversible flaws where it kept fucking up all the time and you wanted to retire it and scrap it, that would be more of a thing. So I think that that, that having some pretense here makes a little sense. Or if, like a certain Russian cruiser that sank almost a year ago, the radar, the defensive systems were turned off because they interfered with communications, and the onboard, Man. the ship's like internal communications were also broken, and you actually, you literally took all the fire extinguishers out of the places they were supposed to be and put them in a locked room that only the captain had the key to so that people wouldn't steal them, and like, most of the suck. engines didn't work. Yeah. So the, there is, there's, I have heard from a YouTuber whose analysis I respect good reasons to doubt the authenticity of the Russian naval, ostensible Russian naval maintenance report describing the pre-sinking condition of the Moskva. But if it, if like, if the fourth part of what that claims about the ship is true, then one, no surprise that people were able to sink it. And two, holy shit, the captain, if he survived the sinking, should be like drawn and quartered yeah i think you i think you gotta court the u.s warship guy, absolutely don't don't let that guy keep captaining ships yeah that would have been if a u.s warship had been discovered in that condition it would have been a highly publicized court martial and then there would have been a congressional committee investigating how the hell no one noticed that anyway we get a few more things so tangentially news from ebay confirms that that mutineer who revealed the corruption there is, has been ordered to be executed so no good deed goes unpunished. And also, they then, as a preventative measure, have the head priest prepare the storm alarm to shut all the shutters and gates in the city as like a riot prevention measure. And then, out of nowhere, news comes out that Anna Andermianima, Anna Andermianai, will be visiting sometime in the next few days, which is a very oddly timed visit because like in a week or two pilgrimage season is going to be happening and so everybody is going to be here so that would be the obvious time for a visit and everyone like 
Everyone sees this and is like, this is so incredibly suspiciously convenient that we have this opportunity to talk to the highest person in government and tell them what's up right now, right when something happened that's up that might involve, like, mid-level bureaucratic corruption. Like, this this can't just be happening for no reason, but they can't figure out what the reason is. Yeah. And I actually don't have, I wasn't able to generate much speculation on that because I'm unable to understand why Anander Mianai needs a motive for this. And I can't think of a lot of other named sources of the malfeasance that On is in the process of identifying. Yeah, I think it's just got to be Anander Mianai is in on it because she shows up in like Orsian clothes, like very specifically rather than regular Ragi clothes or Tanman clothes. And everything she says and does seems like it's showing deference to the Orsians and like really accusatory of and saying like, hey, Orn, have you got have you got a handle on security on this planet? And this really, really just seems like they are gearing up for some kind of false flag attack to justify doing something to the to the Orsians. Or the so doing something to the Orsians sounds maybe reasonable, but maybe the issue is just maybe the issue is exactly the reasons that the Orsians want on around, which is that she's quite soft handed in mm. her administration of the city. And this is described as this is implied to be both very unusual and very desirable. I mean, mm-hmm. desirable is not even no implication there. Yeah. If you've got a military ruler installed, everybody would rather that they be relatively light handed. So maybe maybe the malfeasance, the, the discrediting exists not because Anna Ander needs a reason to remove on, but mm-hmm. in order to make clear to punish her and in the process, make clear that to everybody else administering a territory like this, that they can't go soft. Maybe. Incidentally, did you see Andor? I have not. Okay, can I give you a minor spoiler for, like, the first ten minutes of the second episode, I think? It might actually even be in the first episode. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so there's a really great scene. So, what the protagonist kills some people, right? He, he kills two people in, like, a piece of shit mining town that's, like, a really strong community and has a lot of, like, community values. And the people who run the police here, they are corporate police who are being hired by the Empire to police, like, outlying territories is basically the gist. And someone comes into the 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 sort of chief's office with, like, hey— Two miners got in, like, right outside a bar. This is terrible. What what are we going to do about this? And he's like, the thing to do in situations like this is nothing. We need to make this, we need to make this look as unimportant as it possibly could be. Because you know what did happen? Probably these guys were drunk and they started berating some guy and they started a fight when they shouldn't because they were drunk on shit that we don't that isn't allowed to be sold in that bar and they were off duty when they were supposed to be on duty. So these people are just assholes and they got into trouble because of it. And the best thing that we can possibly do to have this not become a larger problem is just don't 
try and police these people. Just say it was an accident and get out of their hair. Like, that is the most reasonable thing we can do here to not have this just become a bigger problem. Because if we try to look for this guy, the community is going to fully turn on us because this guy was basically in the right. And then they do look for him and it goes terribly wrong. Okay, I might have to watch it. It's it's a really fun, it's a it's such a great scene because he basically just says, like, this guy comes into his office like, we need to get justice. And he just fully shuts him down and is like, the way that we operate is not that we get justice, it's that we keep the peace and enforcing the law is not the way to do that in this case. <laughs> hmm. It's, it's a well-worn trope for a reason. Yeah, I liked it. It was it was a very good scene. Anyway, made me think of this and with the way on as policing things. So anyway, and I under me and I refuses to talk to Lieutenant on about the security problem until the next morning. And that's kind of where we leave the 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 flashback arc. Also, an interesting thing. And Endermiani is referred to as Lord of the Raj, always as Lord of the Raj, which is interesting because it's not Lady of the Raj, it's Lord of the Raj, which you would think maybe they would do if they're using female pronouns for everything. But it could just be that Lady is an antiquated term for, like, aristocracy, right? Like, Lord can just be Lord. It's kind of just become supremacy generally whereas lady is like a particular thing but i don't know so that that's what i'm thinking is lord is specifically an indication of authority and lady doesn't indicate authority in its own right but connect immediate connection to it mm, so if you're the i i agree the dissonance is a little weird but it would lady would make less sense in the specific context that the title's being used Maybe. Also, did we mention Anna and Amanda and I got lots of bodies? They deliberately sent an older body here because the older ones are going to die on their own at some point, so they don't need as much yeah, security. Yeah, they're more expendable. Yeah, so that is another thing to note here. The one, I had very few notes on, or no, that's still chapter six. Yeah. The, yeah, I, I don't have a lot else to say, but, but we should note that. Okay. Or no, actually, the... So I had two predictions, one of which I've actually kind of superseded with the whole Anna Ander is trying to set an example for other officers, so mm -hmm. like to for other military governors. So that prediction we can strike. But the two comments that I had on that. So Anna Ander Manai has thousands of bodies in hundreds of locations and evidently did a thousand years ago before, well, before the, the destruction of the Justice of Torin, or possible destruction of the Justice of Torin, and yeah. before the present is set. One question that, like, I would be very interested to hear how that's supposed to be coordinated. May, are, is, do we, is, like, the original Anna Ander sitting immortal on a golden throne somewhere that no one will find it and controlling all of these through ancillaries? Or so, so do we have I some kind of a different thing going on here? I have a theory here. And my theory is, Anna Ander Man I is... In fact, just controlled by an AI, but nobody knows it. Everybody just thinks she's got a bunch of different bodies, but it's different. But actually, she's just basically an AI. Okay, so that so they are ancillaries, but not under the control of a human. The existence of a human is a fiction to hide that the AI is controlling all of these ancillary bodies. Yeah, and, and I think that specifically be good because it would make one of there's a line that could be foreshadowing it of no one has ever grown an ai big enough to surveil a whole planet and it would also make one esque's goal make more sense because 
like, as Strugan points out, there's no way you can kill all of them because there's thousands of them in hundreds of different locations, but you could shoot a giant computer if you found it. Yeah, that tracks. Write that down. I'm sure that we, I hope we'll have a reason to come back to it. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's all I have to say about chapter six. We want to get through the very short chapter seven. Yeah. So Dr. Strigan takes issue with the Ragi bargaining with the Presca on behalf of all humanity. We learn with the Presca are, they are like even bigger shitheads than the Ragi because they consider everything but themselves to be insignificant prey, which probably is what the Ragi would treat everyone else as if they had the power to do so. But the Presca are more powerful than the Ragi. So there's a... Yeah, it's... Sorry. Or Go ahead. I, I think we're on the same page. We still have very little knowledge about them except for this political position that they are so powerful that the Ragi can't fuck with them. Yeah. And apparently and the that only has thing we know is into that, a treaty. Yeah. Which, as Strigan notes, paradoxically made them more powerful in negotiated surrender because it made them de facto representatives of humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's a de facto way to conquer or at least have legit authority over every other human world because the Presca are the the way that one ask talks about is that they take an all or nothing view of things, which is basically just, they wouldn't give a shit about distinguishing between individual human governments. Yeah. And well, that that's, that's them being, in fact, they, they have, even if they recognize the distinction, they have diplomatic reasons to not recognize it because it would sort of, it would promote humanity to importance to acknowledge that they aren't all just an uncivilized mass. Mm -hmm. Um, Um, Other things I have about this, the notes on the discussion of Rajai reproduction is disturbing and way past like the 40 K iron womb or the brave new world stuff. uh, I I don't have a lot of notes. Go read it. I already talked about the board game. So my only other lingering question from this section is Sivarden's bizarre, like, low or low affect no low affect bad affect equanimity Hmm. it can't still be the influence of the calf because cyborg has been off for several days at this point so is this just ptsd i'm not sure i know what you mean i doesn't she just kind of wordlessly get up and get herself some food um she does i wish i'd written down I really should just start taking my since, since I had to get since I got this book on Kindle, I really should just take my podcasting notes on in the Kindle app because that way I can easily associate it to, to specific bits of text. I think uh-huh. I'm going to start doing that, even if it make we, we might have to figure that out logistically. But yeah, I, I can't. I'm going to flip through and see if I can skim to the particular thing that made me. Huh. No, I don't have it. Okay. I just I wrote that down and like all all of the conversation that Sivarden is involved in is very depressed, but I can't tell like is that still just straight up depression? Is it withdrawal or is it somehow or is it PTSD? Is it somehow lingering effects of the calf? I'm not entirely clear on what's going on here. I think it's much simpler than that. I think she's pouting because she got beat up. I think she's she sees herself as superior to other people and she got decked by someone she considers an inferior and she has no real counter to that. So now she just has to go do the stuff she wants for herself. Maybe one ask, but one ask is unclear on 
One S can't tell if Cyvarden is even aware of having been decked. True. Because, and specifically thinks about, hey, you know, I'm paraphrasing, my android enhanced body might have hit hard enough to concuss Cyvarden. So the memory, like immediate memories surrounding the blow to the head may not be remembered at all. Mm-hmm. Well, but she does get food for herself, right? Rather than ask for it, which would imply that she at least, well, no, but she didn't ask for it before, before she lost her memories. It's it's that it's that one ask asked her to go get food and uh, Cyberden didn't want to do that. Yeah. And I, well, and also she, the, the narration does note she, she must have rem- either remembered or suspected something because she didn't look at one ask during this exchange. Hmm. yeah anyway the other main meat of this chapter is an unexpected guest arrives a woman whose mother was injured in an animal attack with one of those ice devils that was mentioned earlier and the woman's uh, also pretty badly fucked up yeah yeah the the woman is injured the 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 guest the the child is mostly fine sorry that i I phrased that weirdly there's a female there's a girl who brought her mother in because her mother got really injured yeah trying to comfort and distract her one ask Ask if she knows any songs and then asks if she knows any board games. And eventually the kid teaches her to play a local game that one X doesn't know. I, I thought that first thing was interesting, though. She asks if the kid knows any songs rather than just singing to the kid, which is interesting. I, I don't think we've seen one X singing anymore. And I think that's because she likes to sing as part of a chorus, but she can't do that anymore because she's alone. I, I don't think she likes singing alone. She did play that instrument, but she doesn't actually, we've never seen her sing in the present scenes. There's also a bit of interesting linguistic stuff. She asks the kid, do you know any songs? And the kid says, I'm not a singer. And then one esque says, what do you do when you're like trying to get a kid to sleep or you're trying to drown out another sound or something? And the kid says, oh, you mean songs, which clearly means we're getting translated into the same word. Two things that are very culturally distinct in the in the local language here. Yeah, like the the distinction between song and hymn is blurred in in Rajai, but not in Evidently not in whatever Nilter language is being spoken. Yeah, or something like that. Yeah, probably because the theory one esque has is, oh, there must be like, at least in this part of this planet, only certain people who are allowed to sing certain songs. And I'm fucking up my local language and you know, like credit to her. And clearly like she's good at languages. One esque immediately thinks of like, OK, how can I get across what I mean, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't like just try to say singer again, louder or anything like that. She, she's able to intuit, like, how can I sort of say what I mean here without using the word? And that's pretty much all that happens. Cyberton gets food for herself, so she's not starving. And apparently there's plenty of food and the mother is all right for the time being and she's going to be okay. So right now, nothing is going horribly wrong and there's no been no agreement from Stragan about whether she's going to sell the gun or anything. Yeah, I think we're at a good point to stop. Yeah, that that makes sense. As always, thank you for listening. I've been Johnny. And I've been GSV Amusement Park. Good night, folks. And enjoy yourselves. It's later than you think.